a podcast one production. Roll up, roll up. Everyone check out the circus. There's an election to win. I'm Adam Peacock, and this episode of Peacock Politics has a look at what a politician will do to win power and how much BS we're being fed. It's the curious case of campaigning. No baby is safe from a photo op. No high-vis vest, too ridiculous. No sporting pursuit, too hard to try. No workplace, too dangerous to be in, as long as there's an ill-fitting hard hat to wear. And no stranger on the street, too cold to try and warm up with some good-natured banter. My guest will explain the method in the odd but fascinating madness that is campaigning. Mark Kenny spent over two decades as a journalist covering multiple elections for the Fairfax Papers and now he's a senior fellow at the Australian National University in its Australian Studies Institute, which means he knows all about the art, very loose term, of campaigning. Mark, thank you for your time. We're in for some pretty out there stories. (laughs) Great to be here, Adam. Well, look, I guess we always see uh, these elections um, as unique events, but uh, every time there's so much that's the same about them as well. So there's a lot to talk about here, no doubt about that. In your mind, what goes into creating a campaign? Well, I guess the parties, um, they have a lot of notice about when the election is going to be, uh, except for those, you know, really rare sort of snap elections. We don't really see them anymore. I mean, uh, everyone's aware of the of the uh, sort of political cycle. So both sides are positioning for a long time behind the scenes. It's down to the party organisations rather than, of course, the, the parliamentary parties. It'll be the parliamentary party leaderships that feature in these election campaigns, but long before any of that happens, you know, the party uh, national secretary in the case of Labor or the national director in case of the Liberal Party will be uh, doing all kinds of planning. And there are a million things to do, and that means there are a million things that can go wrong. And they have to try and get all of those things organised and, and get ready for the, the, you know, the truly frenetic, disorganised and, uh, and, and potentially chaotic uh, business of, of election campaigns themselves. It's a really, really complicated thing. There's laws to comply with, there's funds to be raised, there's candidates to be selected, there's policies to be developed, plans to be outlined in terms of uh, how information will be rolled out, and there's risks to be minimised. Perhaps probably the most important thing about uh, election campaigns is the minimisation of risk. Just on, you mentioned that the the various parties, the two main parties, they get all their houses in order, so to speak. But They it, try to, yeah. They try to. Is there people from outside involved in this? Like the, the wonderful word, and I hope to one day be one of these, a consultant, because it seems like a good gig, but is there consultants, are there outside influences that um, play a part in all of this? Uh, increasingly that's the case, uh, but what you find is that there are consulting firms that are... Um, sometimes drawn from the parties, that is, they are uh, made up of people who are former senior members of, uh, of political parties or of governments or government staffs, and uh, sometimes these consulting companies have close relationships with, uh, with one side or other. And those consulting firms can become almost indivisible from the party machines once those election campaigns are being devised. And that's certainly been the case in recent times on both sides of the political fence. Right, I set us up here with um, for the rest of the, the chat with a, a great example of a very good campaign and a great example of a horrific campaign, a really badly run campaign. Well, can. I suppose it's not that hard really, um, you know, when you think about it. The great campaign is the one that wins. You know, it really is as simple as that. You sort of pay on results here. Probably among the best campaigns I've seen, and I've seen plenty of them over the years, 
I remember, you know, my very early years sort of watching the 1983 campaign of Bob Hawke. Uh, the slogan was bringing Australia together and or bring Australians together, one of those two. And it very much spoke to the zeitgeist of the time. I mean, there was the there was all the divisions from the from the Whitlam era in the mid seventies. There was the government that came out of the dismissal on the other side, which was Malcolm Fraser's government. There were all kinds of you know problems and as I say, divisions associated with that. And then Bob Hawke came along, and he was the Messiah. He was the you know the popular, charismatic figure that was going to end all of this. He developed a reputation for being the great conciliator, the great negotiator in his role as uh, head of the ACT. TU and he somehow managed to kind of speak to everyone. He was friends with business people. He was uh, the friend of the working man or working family, as we now call it. And uh, and and Hawke came along with this really sort of potent slogan, bringing Australians together. And that campaign really was built on previous work of others, but uh, nonetheless, it was a, a pretty much a perfect campaign, and it catapulted Labor into office. And of course, they were there for. Um, a staggering 13 years after that. Kevin Rudd's campaign in 2007 was a similarly successful campaign. It also had the feeling of um, there being an impatience for a change of government. So you'd, you'd sort of nominate those as a couple of really good campaigns, partly because simply they worked. Uh, then again, you could probably pick one that worked, but it only just worked, and therefore you'd put it in the category of a pretty poor campaign, and that was... Malcolm Turnbull's campaign in 2016. You know, he started off with a uh, a staggering majority and ended up with a majority of just one. And he ran that campaign for an unnecessarily long eight weeks without all that much to talk about. And the campaign really did struggle for meaning. Was that the worst one you can think of? Is there any, like, just ones that have been totally stuffed up? Well, there's been a few of the state levels that have gone awry. I mean, we saw the the Labor campaign in New South Wales quite recently. Uh, it was probably, for the most part, a fairly good campaign. I remember speaking to Michael Daly's people not long before the election in the sort of penultimate week in the, in the, in the last but one week of that election campaign. And they were even then surprised at how well they were doing. There was a bit of talk starting in the in the commentariat that this might be a uh, come-from-behind, unlikely win for Labor, that Michael Daly was doing better. But that campaign really fell apart. I mean, the wheels came off uh, quite badly. There was talk about uh, a speeding fine. There was particularly that video emerged of Daly having spoken to a group uh, in September of last year talking about uh, you know people of Chinese origin with PhDs moving into the inner cities and taking uh, taking people's jobs and so forth and it really just fell apart so campaigns can be really subject to uh, events and they can be subject to very clever I suppose timing by the other side and that was a good case of a good example of that really because uh, in the, uh, you know, it was pretty obvious that the Libs had been sitting on that video of Michael Daly talking. They'd been sitting on that for a while and they released it in the last week right at the critical moment and it pretty much killed the Labor campaign. How often does that happen? I'm fascinated with how a campaign runs about one side you've got a political party, whoever it is, trying to tell the electorate about hope and about how better their lives will be with them in power. And on the flip side, you've got that same party saying how horrible your mm. lives will be and how dangerous the opposition is and don't you dare let them in because this will happen and mm. the, the sky will cave in, as I mentioned at the top. How much of it is about either side of that 
at the really, moment? It's a really good question because the general orthodoxy in campaigning is that the negative stuff works. No one really likes it. No one really likes to talk about it. No one really likes to do it, or at least they say they don't. But most people involved in politics know that the negative messaging is the sharp messaging. It's the stuff that is likely to cut through to people and potentially to either harden their support for the side wanting to frighten them or or scare them away from going for change. And we can see that happening in this election campaign right now. The government is really selling a, a pretty unsexy message of uh, stick with us and you'll get more of the same. And they're trying to say more of the same in the economic sense rather than in the political sense because I guess they don't really want to draw attention to the fact that they knocked off Malcolm Turnbull and lost Julie Bishop and and all of the other chaos that's gone on. But they do want to say, look, we've delivered a strong economy, we've got unemployment at a very low level, we've got very low inflation, we've got uh, growth uh, coming into the economy, company profits are up, the budget's about to come back into surplus and it will go into stronger surplus after that. We are about these sorts of things and only through a strong economy can you get other dividends such as, you know, proper education funding and the like. Now, that's okay, but it's not a particularly emotional message. Labor, on the other hand, is selling hope. It's selling the idea of a of a better Australia. It's talking about taking action on climate change, which we know voters want by and large. And it's talking about addressing a really great sense of umbrage that many Australians have about the economy growing, but them not having any, you know, sort of dividend of that in their pay packets, you know, getting wages up, uh, spending more on education, doing something about the cost of housing and so forth through these um, closing of tax loopholes. The whole fairness question, which, you know, uh, seems to be, uh, uh, you know, a very pressing one in this election. So, you know, both sides have those positive messages, but... As far as the the government goes, it's probably getting more bite by saying if you elect a Labor government, you are going to see the budget blown, you're going to see, uh, you know, uh, what were going to be surpluses become deficits, you're going to see debt rising, you're going to see uh, Bill Shorten's hand in your pocket, taxes are going to be going up everywhere, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an irresponsible uh, package that they're proposing, we've seen it before, we'll see it again, you know, don't risk it. And uh, that's probably a message that is far more potent for the uh, coalition than, um, you know, than selling them more of the same thing. We know political parties are full of policy makers. That's what they do. They come up with a policy and try and follow through with it. That's what they like to tell you anyway. That's what they like to tell you because my question is, are there people actively involved in policy breaking, i.e. in a campaign working for one political party to muckrake, if you like, or pick holes in the opposition, that's their sole duty. Is is that how it works or is it a collective and everyone does it together? Oh, look, I think you're on the right track with that to an extent because if you can blow the opposition or, you know, the other side's policy out of the water, if you can show that it hasn't been properly thought through, that there are going to be uh, many, many more losers out of the policy than that particular side is saying or that it's going to cost a lot more, that it's, you know, poorly designed... That will go to eroding confidence in that policy, but also eroding confidence in the competence of that political party to actually, you know, take on the very serious business of governing. So it's absolutely critical. And there have been examples of that in the past where policies have just ended up, um, they've looked good at first and then they've ended up becoming negatives because they look like they will cost a lot more and and they haven't been thought through. And it tends to be easier for governments to do that to oppositions because governments have... One, they've had this sort of um, control of the political agenda and the timing of the election. 
but also they've usually had the advantage of being in office, of having public servants, looking at policy and, and providing advice and so forth. And oppositions are a much more kind of um, sort of string and tape affair and they're trying to compete with the government in the electoral marketplace, but they have to do policy development and and the costing of that and they have to organise most of that themselves. That's changed a bit now because of the Parliamentary Budget Office, which is a very good innovation, I think, uh, in Australia. It was brought in actually by in, in the last days of the Howard government, but it, uh, it actually has done uh, very good things in terms of giving some sort of objective assessment for voters of the of policy uh, proposals from both sides. But of course, they're accused of bias from time to time as well, aren't they? Everyone well, is in the political sphere. Everything's fair game, obviously. <laughs> I mean, for example, Labor's been um, complaining and not without some, I think, prima facie justification that the government has tended uh, more and more to politicise the public service, both in terms of the uh, work that it's asking public servants to do, but even to the extent of appointing former staffers into key public service positions. And right now, for example, the, the Treasury Secretary, the top economic bureaucrat in the country, is a former Chief of Staff to Peter Costello. So um, in Labor thinks that uh, that is you know, potentially the tainting of the public service, but also uh, it's, it's just a bad look. So I would think his job is um, one of the more insecure ones if there's a change of government. No such thing as independence in politics. Well, that's right. I mean, they, they you know, there's, there's this kind of a gentleman's agreement, if I can put it in those, that old world sort of way, um, that the uh, public servants and that the, uh, the Electoral Commission and the Reserve Bank and all of these institutions that are meant to be impartial, that they are sort of off limits. But elections are bare-knuckle affairs when you get down to it. Mm. And uh, if you get information that suggests that uh, someone's behaved inappropriately or that uh, a public service department is uh, perhaps leaning one way more than the other in the political sense, then I guess it's going to come out in an election campaign because, as I say, everyone's going for broke. Yeah. Does it sometimes spill over a bit or do you think things are held back because perhaps certain matters are stepping over an imaginary line? I don't know what the line is. I don't think anyone really knows what the line is. But what I'm asking is in a campaign, is it no holds barred or are there things held back and off limits? Well, it's probably, I wouldn't call it no holds barred exactly, but um, uh, it, it does really depend on the judgment of the of the politicians involved. I mean, you can overcook things. If you overcook an argument uh, and uh, you're exposed for that, then that can rebound on you and do you more harm than good. So you need to be careful. I mean, politics is often a bit like a Rubik's Cube. You know, you go, you move one, uh, one side of the, the block mm. and uh, things are changing on the other side that you're perhaps not looking at and maybe haven't thought about. So you do need to be very careful. Labor, for example, might want to criticise strongly the government's uh, border protection policies and the bureaucrats associated with it. But it has to think about, okay, that might please some of our supporters, many of whom are upset about Australia's you know, very hard-line border protection policies. But Labor also has to think about the many people who support those policies and the many people who support the idea of uh, an independent public service uh, and will be concerned about that. Uh, and indeed, I suppose they have to think about whether they just want to be fighting the election on that ground anyway. You know, like you take climate change, for example. At the moment, there's been a fair bit of discussion in the election campaign about climate change, about the cost of Labor's more ambitious emissions reductions plans and so forth. 
There's a school of thought that says that that is fine for Labor to be in that situation, even though at times Bill Shorten's looked uncomfortable about it because Australians are so committed to wanting action on climate change that if the election's being fought over that issue, it just keeps reinforcing the government's recalcitrance, you know, the government's sort of uh, reluctance to actually do anything serious in this space. It's hard to know, of course, but, um, you know, that, that, that these are all the judgments that are being made by political strategists on a daily basis. About the judgments... How does what the electorate actually feels and what it is actually thinking get judged as a campaign is rolling along? Because Yeah, there's polls, but there's sample sizes. How do they make a, a serious adjudication about what they are doing and what they are pushing is actually the right thing and what the yeah. electorate wants to hear? Yeah, and that's right, because it's, it's, it's sort of part art, part science, this. Uh, there are a lot of polls, as you say, many, many more sort of published uh, public opinion polls than, than even we have in the normal course of uh, political coverage, which many people would probably say are too many polls anyway. <laughs> um, but, uh, yes, during election campaigns, both sides are spending a bit of money doing research. They, they run focus groups. They, they test messages. You'll notice, for example, Labor MPs, uh, when they're speaking are constantly using this term cuts and chaos when they're talking about uh, the, the coalition. Now, this has obviously been a focus group tested um, uh, phrase. There's it's another present. one as well that I've heard. Yeah, what's that one? The other side. I can't help but think that every single coalition politician loves saying the word or the two words, Bill Shorten. Yeah. They love yeah. saying his name. Yeah, they love pinning a personality on an ideal that they've got and pushing it out there. So would you imagine that they've run that through... Um, I would, I would. And so they do tracking polling where they actually work out how they're going sometimes in uh, key seats around the nation. At the moment, of course, there's, uh, this would be quite difficult because there are so many seats in play around the country um, at the moment uh, for a variety of reasons, including seats that are being defended by quite senior government figures. So it, it, it'd be interesting to know they sit on this information very tightly and it's not, not easy to get hold of. But uh, you, you subsequently learn about it when the party officials give their sort of post-mortems, uh, sometimes weeks and months after the election. But uh, they do a bit of tracking polling, but they also run these focus group things and uh, they test messages and they ask voters. You, you can occasionally see these on uh, Sky was running, for example, the other day, a video of a focus group after the, I think it was the Sky uh, TV debate between Shorten and Morrison. Oh, in Brisbane, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting to sort of see which messages, uh, which key phrases used by each of those two um, prime ministerial contenders really cut through to voters. What did they take from it? What did they take from the body language? What are they taking from, um, you know, the style? Was one leader too aggressive or not aggressive enough? Was someone too mealy-mouthed? Was someone interrupting too much? What sort of key things came out of it that uh, that voters take from those arguments? Because that actually informs how they constantly tinker and, and, and shape their messaging going forward. You know, it's about hoovering up as much support as you can in an election campaign, and that's what they're doing. It must be incredibly stressful for the people involved, whatever side of politics. Because I, I agree. I, I don't know how, um, you know, someone like uh, Scott Morrison or Bill Shorten sort of does it when, you know, I've watched these uh, leaders up close and, uh, you know, everyone from John Howard 
since then, really, or even before then, but certainly up close watching John Howard and all the Prime Ministers since and the opposition leaders and watching them front up day after day, getting up first thing in the morning, being on morning radio, being on your game the whole time. This is, the, I think, one of the great dangers of election campaigns is that you can't really afford to have an off day or a bad interview because there's just such a sort of a magnifying glass on all of the behaviour and the messaging and you've got to try and get it right the whole time. Since you followed it, has it always been that way or is it magnified even more now with the internet? Oh, there's no doubt that the advent of, of digital media uh, and the sort of democratisation digitally of the whole electoral, electoral process has really revved this up. Uh, so events happen now and they happen contemporaneously around the country. Uh, it used to be political leaders would probably do a fair bit of, if we're honest about it, probably do a fair bit of audience shopping, you know, tailoring their message depending on which group they were talking to, they might say one thing in Queensland. I mean, you know, the Adani thing might be a good example, you know. In the old days, they, the might, have been able, yep. yeah, they might have been able to get away with going to Queensland and being, you know, a bit pro-coal mine, go to Victoria and be a bit, you know, anti-coal and, uh, you know, a bit more kind of green-tinged in the, in the messaging. That becomes very hard in the internet age. Everyone is watching everything and it's all happening contemporaneously. You make a mistake and bang, it flies around the internet. So now you have to have a Forex in one hand and a green tea in the other and drink them at <laughs> once. <a> very <laughs> yeah. and, and what's the risk of that? The risk of that, of course, is that you look disingenuous. <laughs> the you risk know, of that it, is it tastes like crap. Well, that's <laughs> the risk of that. <laughs> that is the big risk of that, that's true. And the secondary risk of that is that you look disingenuous yeah. because uh, you're really trying to sell this idea of authenticity, which is, you know, a pretty pretty bizarre concept, selling authenticity. But uh, that's what politicians are trying to do. They're trying to stand with the people and mm. say, I've got the plan for you, I can represent you, I, can, I am you, in a sense. And um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's always been the game in political representation, I suppose, but it's very hard during election campaigns when it's just so relentless and so much rides on it. Just on the positivity message v the negativity message, um, back to that topic briefly, I was mm. driving uh, in my area a couple of weeks ago, and this is around the 2019 federal election campaign, and I was driving through, I don't live in Tony Abbott's electorate, but I was driving through it, and there was this mm -hmm. massive truck with a massive billboard pinned to the back of it, just driving around everywhere, and it said, a vote for Zali Stegall, the independent, is mm -hmm. a vote for Bill Shorten. So yep. there was nothing about Tony Abbott, nothing about what Tony Abbott could do for the electorate, but it was a clear message from him to the voter to go, if you go with this woman you're going to get this bloke and his decisions. Is that a classic play or is that someone that, getting a little desperate? Uh, I think that's probably a fabulous example of what we've been talking about, uh, of a couple of things we've been talking about, the value of and the potential cut through of the negative message, uh, but also the results of focus group testing or of, uh, of knowing your electorate. So if you think about it in terms of Warringah, uh, it's a safe Liberal seat. It's uh, long been a Liberal seat. It's it's convincingly so. There are many people in that electorate who are well off, who are Liberal supporters, died in the wool as it were, who never would have considered abandoning their party and who have, uh, have, have never voted Labor. You know, they're anti-union, they're pro-business, they want smaller taxes, smaller government, these sorts of things. However, they are flirting with the idea of leaving Tony Abbott. We know that from the same-sex marriage survey showed 75% of people in that seat. It was the second highest Liberal seat in the country behind Wentworth that voted yes in that, uh, that same-sex marriage survey. More people, a higher proportion of people in Warringah said yes to the same-sex marriage uh, idea 
than did uh, the people say yes in the ACT, supposedly the most uh, progressive jurisdiction in the country. So there's a real disconnect between Liberals in Warringah and the Liberal member for Warringah, and this is what Zali Stegel is trying to exploit. She's trying to say, I'm the candidate for the future. I'm, I'm a Liberal, but I'm a Liberal for the future. He's a Liberal for the past. Now, what Tony Abbott needs to do and what they've decided to do is to try and really needle away at that proposition and say, actually, if you vote for Zali Stegel, you're effectively voting for a shortened government. And to a lot of lifelong Liberal voters, that's too much of a leap, too much of a bitter pill to swallow. That's the gamble they're, they're taking with that, and that's really what the purpose of that message is. Oh, well, if you're listening to this post-election, you'll know if it worked or not, if a big truck with a big billboard worked for Tony Abbott or not. It'll be fascinating to find out. Is the politician in a campaign merely just an actor? It depends a little bit who that politician is. Some politicians are, uh, are obviously more in control of things. Uh, independents, for example, are, um, are generally speaking uh, not answering to a party and they build their campaigns around their own personal brand. To an extent, that's a confection, you know, that's a creation, but nonetheless, it's a creation that's very much uh, their own work. Uh, in the political parties, uh, particularly the bigger political parties, uh, that can be the case that they are really just soldiers of a broader political cause. They, uh, they're sort of uh, projecting a set of values, most of which they believe in, but almost certainly there wouldn't be everything in a political manifesto that they agree or believe in, but they say they do. Uh, and they are, they are um, you know, playing a part. And they do so along a, a very familiar script, a, a script I think that's starting to wear very thin with electors, which may explain why so many of them are voting early. You know, they just want to get it done and, and stop listening. But mm. I think, you know, this script involves sort of talking about your own side as if it is, uh, you know, the best thing since sliced bread and the other side as being an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, this sort of exaggeration, I think, is increasingly ringing hollow with voters because if you think about it, it, it essentially constructs you, the voter, as a bit of an idiot. You're sort yeah. of lacking subtlety and uh, you're meant to believe that, say, going back to the last election campaign, we're meant to believe that, that Malcolm Turnbull was a disaster for the country and that Bill Shorten was the best thing, or, or vice versa. And I think most people on any objective analysis would say, well, they had good and bad, uh, and there wasn't really that much between them anyway when, when it came down to what plans they had for the country. I'm as equally fascinated, not so much about what they say for those reasons you just mentioned. It, it does wear thin sometimes, but but some of the things they do... I mean, you've been on the, the, the campaigning caravan with either side, and, and yep. you, you literally travel around with the leader or the, the said politician yep. and you go from town to town and you find yourselves in some, some weird places. I do get the feeling sometimes, though, that they don't actually think it through about what they're putting yeah. the politician in front of the cameras for. You've seen some ridiculous circumstances where they're, they're doing things that never in a million years they'd be they'd be working in some factory helping someone yeah, yeah. with it. And it's like, that's not you. What yeah, kind of yeah. garbage this is? Do, do you... Did you find that when you're on the trail that you, you get the daily schedule and you go, oh, this is going to be good because they're just going to embarrass the crap out of themselves? Well, that's true. Yeah, you do find that a bit. Uh, election campaigns are just such odd sort of farcical uh, uh, things, really, processes. Um, you often don't know where you're going from one event to the next. Sometimes it'll be an event in the same city. Another time you'll get back on the bus after some 
you know, tawdry press conference where you didn't get any answers to any of the questions and, <laughs> and you know, they'll get rid of their high-vis vest and the, and the hard hat you were referring to at the top of the program and they'll get back into their car and the, all the media will get back into the bus and, and then you don't even, you might not even know literally where you're going and it turns out you're going to the airport, um, to the, you know, the kind of business part of the, or pr- some private part of the airport where there's a charter flight and it takes you either to somewhere else in that state or to another capital city and you don't often get told which capital city until you're in the air. It's um, What? Yeah, yeah, it's, it happens quite a bit. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be times, for example, when you'll be in a hotel in a city and you'll be told by the, the Prime Minister's media handlers by text message at 10pm on a given night, please check out of your room and have your bags in the lobby by 5am. And what that means is that, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving that city because you're leaving that hotel. What if you're 10 beers down? Yeah, that's a problem. Exactly. That has happened. That has happened. <laughs> I bet. In fact, it happens quite regularly on election <laughs> campaigns. You'd, you'd, uh, you'd need to just to get you through it. Uh, yeah, that's right. Although I suspect it happens a little bit less now because of that digital media thing where everyone's yeah. got kind of rolling deadlines the whole time and where tiny little details sometimes become become big stories depending on when there are pictures. The, the obverse, you know, the other the other version of that is that you'll get a, an, a text from the, the Prime Minister's media advisor saying, please meet in the lobby at 8.30, no need to check out. And you know then that you are in that city for that whole next day and night because if you're not checking out of that hotel, you're obviously you're in there for another night. And uh, that sometimes... I remember in the 2007 campaign, we had a whole string of these times when we were told no need to check out. We were staying at the Langham in um, in Melbourne, not a bad spot, you know, on, at no. South Bank there. And I think we were there for like three or four nights in a row, which is pretty much unheard of in election campaigns. But from that, you could infer some pretty solid uh, things. One, that the uh, coalition's uh, re-election campaign was in an awful lot of trouble. And two, that there were a bunch of seats around eastern uh, southeastern Melbourne that, uh, that the Prime Minister, John Howard at the time, was determined to sandbag to try and limit the losses. And uh, they were hunkered. That's where the Liberal Party's campaign was being run from in that campaign back in uh, back in 2007 from Melbourne. And uh, the PM and uh, the, the party director at the time were obviously uh, sort of hunkered down, strategising and, and working out uh, how they could best protect their own seats rather than, uh, you know, rather than even have the luxury of thinking about what seats they might be able to... Uh, take from Labor because that just wasn't on in that election campaign. Of course, we know how that ended. That ended with the uh, what became known as the Rudd slide. Who um who pays for all this, by the way? Because I'm thinking the Langham is not exactly your flag in hundred dollars a night or no, no, that's right. Well, I mean, the media organisations pay for it. it. It's very expensive for media organisations to send people on these campaigns because. At a minimum, you've uh, for a newspaper. At a minimum, you've got two people on each bus, and you've got to have both buses covered. So you've got the prime minister's mm. bus and the opposition leader's bus, and you've got at least one reporter and at least one photographer uh, travelling. And all of those uh, uh, airfares, all of those uh, hotel accommodations, and of course meals and, and other things are, are all met by the employer. So they're talking. I think the last figure I heard was about fifty thousand dollars for an election campaign just in expenses for um that might be for a um a journalist and a photographer but uh, it's still quite a big investment and that's why the newspapers are absolutely uh, you know dominated by political news they're trying Mm. to get their their value for their investment yeah they're on the cusp bus they may as well make the use of it on but what about the parties who who pays for all the the campaigns in that regard well donations 
most of it's donations. That's why parties spend so much time, uh, you know, trying to raise money, and it's why they're prepared to take a certain amount of political heat for their associations with various donors. Because at the end of the day, without money, they can't they can't run campaigns and they can't get elected. So there's a fair bit of expense that goes into it from the party's point of view. As for the PM's travel and the the travel of the other leaders and uh, MPs, a lot of that is paid for by the taxpayer right up until such time as the uh, the campaign is officially launched. So that might go some way to explaining why the campaigns aren't actually officially launched these days until quite late in the piece. Ah. Labor's uh, about two weeks out and, and the coalition about one week out from, less than one week out from... Cost-cutting. Ah, okay. Yeah, because up until then, I think uh, the, the, the taxpayer is picking up the travel, at least, the air travel of, um, of the MPs. But beyond that, it becomes the cost of the party and uh, it's a pretty expensive business especially when you throw in all the all the advisors and uh, you know logistics people and um, it's a big operation and it's a complicated operation is there no tomorrow with the campaign like does it really matter what is said because is it actually going to be followed through with i think so um I understand where you're going because a lot of things are said during campaigns and some of those things traditionally have been forgotten or they've simply been ignored. You know, the old method that used to be used, sometimes legitimately, other times perhaps a little more um, creatively, was that a party would get elected uh, having, you know, promised a whole lot of things and after the, after a week or so uh, would, you know, there would be some sort of statement saying we've now had a look at the books, we've actually found that uh, things are a lot worse than they were, we're going to have to delay you know, these things that we've promised in mm-hmm. order to uh, to balance the budget or whatever, or other things that might be a bit controversial uh, that uh, they tend not to be uh, prioritised. They might not be so much cost issues, but they might be some sort of social policy or plan to move toward a republic or whatever. Or that, build uh, a wall in Mexico, for instance. Yes, or build a wall another. in Mexico, yeah. yeah. That's a very good example. Um, you know, so... Promises, uh, I think voters these days expect promises to be, if not broken, then to be, uh, you know, fairly flexible kinds of uh, commitments. Uh, it doesn't make people like politicians anymore, but it does. It's it's funny how politicians tend to see it. Tony Abbott got elected in 2013, very much on the uh, on the sort of specific uh, virtue of saying that governments need to keep their promises and need to stick to their promises. And yet that didn't last even until their first budget. You know, they <laughs> they had a budget, uh, what was that, seven or eight months later. wasn't even that, actually, about seven months later. And it was full of broken promises. And uh, the voters never forgave that government for that. Is there such thing as a campaign period now, though? Like, really? Like... It, are politicians campaigning the whole time? Yes, I do think that the whole notion of the campaign has become more uh, a more flexible idea. It has it is almost semi permanent. Uh, mostly because oppositions sort of make it that way, but governments too. You don't have quiet days in politics anymore. You, th- those quiet days are the rarity. You have uh, days where uh, prime ministers and opposition leaders are are um, are not around, but not very often. The truth is they're out there campaigning all the time. And what Tony Abbott showed, and I think Rudd had showed this through uh, the t- uh, 2006 and into 2007, and what uh, Tony Abbott then showed as opposition leader between, uh, I suppose, 2009 and 2013 when he finally uh, became the Prime Minister, was that if you campaign relentlessly, then you can keep the government off guard. You know, you're constantly there nipping at the heels and you're a chance to uh, to pull off an election. And Bill Shorten learned that lesson. We saw him do that between 2013 and 2016. Uh, 
the government had a huge majority, but by the end of that campaign, as we discussed before, Malcolm Turnbull had, had reduced his majority to just one, and Bill Shorten came very close to uh, to winning the popular vote in that election. And he did that really by just being out there, doing town hall meetings and doing factory gate meetings, being seen, you know, in the high vis vest and the and the silly goggles and the and the <laughs> and the hat, just constantly on the road and out there, sort of selling the message and honing his skills, I suppose, in the process. To infinity and beyond, to coin a <laughs> phrase used by Buzz Lightyear, uh, Mark yeah. Kenny. Or inanity. In <laughs> well put. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Um, really appreciate your insight, given you're an expert and how many election campaigns you've covered in the press and now as a senior fellow at uh, ANU. Really appreciate your time on Peacock Politics. Great pleasure, Adam. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.